Do you know what the secret is to keep a baby's skin healthy? The secret is a diaper that doesn't leave skin wet. You've heard me talk about Pampers Swaddlers on our podcast many, many times now, and that's because Pampers Swaddlers is the diaper for healthy baby skin. Pampers Swaddlers absorbs wetness better than the leading value brand and provides up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. And if you're a fan of Pampers, you've got to check out their new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, which clean better than Huggies Natural Care and are five times stronger, so they resist tearing during a diaper change. With Free and Gentle, mess meets its match. And if you're like me and you love saving and getting rewarded for something you gotta buy anyway, like diapers, don't forget to download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. You can redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers free and gentle wipes for healthy baby skin. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to ABG, Asian Boss Girl, a podcast for the modern-day Asian-American woman. My name is Helen. I'm Janet. And I'm Mel. Some call it post-grad life, others call it the gray zone. Whatever you call it, the time period after you graduate college to the first couple of years of your job is tough. It's this unpredictable time in your life that you feel that you weren't prepared for or that direction of your life can turn at any point. For us, this is the moment where self-doubt was the highest and we started to question what we truly want in life. However, as we get older and live more and more years past that period post-college, we are realizing that the gray zone actually extends far beyond that initial time after school. These periods of uncertainty that often prompt confusion and self-doubt actually occur many times throughout life. Whether it's a decade into your career and trying to figure out what the next step is, entering marriage, building a family, etc. You know what? Gray zone is actually kind of interrelated with choice, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you think about elementary and high school, depending on where you lived or where your parents decided to live, your schools were basically chosen for you. And it's not until college that you sure you might have a decision on where you want to go to college, what you want to study. But then for the next four years, you're basically just trying to excel. And in order to excel, you just know you have to study hard and get an A and pass. And then you also know that there's limited time, right? There's four years and after the four years is done and over with, then the difficult part comes. And I think that's when the gray zone actually starts to kick in. And that's when there are limitless opportunities for who you can be. And so then you have this choice paralysis, buyer's remorse, and you're not sure what you want to do. And you're always questioning every decision you make in this post-grad time of your life. So I guess, ladies, to start off this conversation, Mel, what was your first year like after graduating college? Man, I think for me, I felt the gray zone, especially after post-grad. I think I mentioned this in a previous episode, but for me, I really thought I had all my shit figured out. Like, I had a bunch of internships. I got a really decent grade, and I went to a good university. So I thought, okay, cool. I'll get a job easily after I graduate. But I didn't anticipate that I would fall in love with my first internship at the film festival in San Diego. So I made this deal with my mom. 
After I graduated college, it was in June, but the film festival I was working towards was in November. And ideally, you should be looking for your job like spring quarter and then you should land a job after you graduate. Mm-hmm. But I told my mom, I was like, you know, I really want to like see this internship through. I want to work towards this till November. So I stayed in San Diego during that time. And it was great, but at the same time, I wasn't making money. I was comparing myself to my friends and they're already landing jobs working in tech. So it was kind of a weird time for me. Anyways, after I got the internship, I made the promise to my mom, I'll move back home to the Bay Area. So after November, I packed my bags, went back to the Bay and thought finding a job would be easy. Cause you know, hey, I'm in Silicon Valley. Should be really quick to find a job. And then I could pay for all these things like my friends are paying for. Mm-hmm. But didn't expect that Wong Fu release an internship for the following few months. And I was at crossroads. I remember I was telling myself, no, 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 I need to find a job. I made that promise to my mom. She helped me pay for that time when I was working at the film festival. I need to do this for her. That's what society wants. They want me to find a job after college. But I was so intrigued by this internship because I knew I wanted to work in YouTube. I want to work for Wong Fu. And I wrote this Tumblr blog post and I was like, you know what? I'm going to apply for Wong Fu. And if I get it, I think it's a sign that I need to go for it. If I don't get it, I'll stay in the Bay. I'll look for a job and just be like everyone else. I ended up getting the internship at Wong Fu. And mm-hmm. I, I know it literally just set everything off for me. So it's like I had this like realizing my dream moment when I got it. And I packed my bags, moved to L.A. Wasn't making any money, like to be honest. because well, my such a creative. Gosh. I didn't. How, how long was this out of school at this point? So I graduated in 2013 in June. I got the internship for Wong Fu in 2014 in February. Oh, so actually there were that was a, six months. Yeah, yeah six so, months. But what then you were doing film festival before. Between yeah. then. Yeah. So, so I you still to, felt like engaged and you exactly. weren't questioning. So things. I was working towards something like the mm-hmm. film festival that was unpaid as well. So I think I had to make this like deal with my mom. Like she was helping me pay for housing and stuff. So then when I got the Wong Fu thing, I feel like I was kind of like gambling again with her. She's like, you want to move down to LA for an unpaid internship? How are you going to pay for this? What are you going to do? So I told her, I said, hey, I really want to do this. I'll find a part-time job as I do this internship, which I did. I was working as a research for this documentary that paid me a little bit. But my time at Wong Fu was great because it was like my dream. Like I got to work with these YouTubers I looked up since I was like 16 and that was great. But the moment that internship ended, I didn't know what to do again. And how many months was that internship? I was there from I think February till June again. So probably like mm. a couple months. Mm-hmm. But when that internship ended, I was jobless. I was living in LA with no money. Yeah. Honestly, media companies, if you guys know, it's usually unpaid for internships. Yeah, so true, it's true, really true. quite the norm. When that internship ended, I was again, like, didn't know what to do. I was stuck in LA and I wanted to be there, but I didn't, I just didn't know what direction. So you were in the gray zone. I was really yeah. in the gray zone in this time period. It's a gray time in your life. Great. If that was a color that you had to choose. I, yeah. It'd I was, be gray. I was very stuck, to be completely honest. I ended up finding, luckily, due to Wang Fu, I met someone who is actually one of our producers now, Eric, and I started working with Eric, and I started tour managing and producing like YouTube videos, which is like amazing. And I felt like I kind of was working towards something else again, right? I was like, yay, my life is out of the gray, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. And even though that was such a really fun time for me, it was around another six months of my time, I wasn't getting paid enough to like make a living or sustain a life in Los Angeles. While I was working for Eric, I ended up moving back home to the Bay Area. I was working remote because a lot of my job required travel, which is like fine because I got to like, you know, not pay for rent and stuff. But then that job, it ended as well. And I was, again, stuck at home with no job. 
Mm. No idea where to go. And I was job hunting, but I feel like that's a pretty consistent story with people who are creatives, right? It's like you don't have a steady stream of income and you Mm -hmm. also just never know when there's going to be a big project that can last you for a long period of time. So it's always going to be jumping from project to project. And there's a lot of instability, but at the same time, you do feel like you're fulfilling some level of like passion. Oh yeah, for sure. Like I feel like I got to live the life of a freelancer and I was like, Mm -hmm. oh, this is cool because like I get to travel the world, but then, oh, like it's kind of inconsistent. I don't know when I'm going to get paid, right? Mm-hmm. When you're going through it and you first land a gig and you know it's going to be up in like a couple of months, yeah, you're focused on just like really loving the work, right? You're yeah, like, you're not really thinking about the couple months mm-hmm. ahead, and that probably speaks to like a personality thing because. I also went through periods where I did that, but I don't like Yeah. Thinking. So I would not be able to enjoy the experience because I was like always thinking about like, I don't know what's going to happen after. <laughs> no, ex- and exactly. I guess the good thing about the gray zone, you're trying to figure out what you like and what you don't like, right? So with that experience, I realized, hey, I don't like living paycheck to paycheck. I knew my next mm. move it had to be full-time. So... After that internship or that job ended, I was looking for a full-time job, but I knew I wanted to be in LA. I moved back and forth, I think, so many times, but then finally I made a decision after that producing job or tour managing job ended, I'm going to move back to LA, I'm going to find a full-time job in LA, and I'm going to make it work. I ended up moving to LA, and it was one of the worst times of my life because I was job hunting for about six months, not getting anything. I was interviewing, and I wasn't getting a final offer, and at that time, I saw a lot of people and my peers coming up. Mm-hmm. in my work. I started going, I started spiraling out because I was comparing myself to saying, hey, why she had the opportunity that I used to have and I don't get that anymore. And when you're job hunting, you're getting turned down. You don't feel like you're working towards anything. It's very, yeah, yeah total shot to confidence. Yeah. yeah. And I think I was alone. Like, you guys know me, I'm an extrovert. I had no one to talk to. Mm. And I just kind of was in this dark place where nothing was working out for me and my confidence was shot. And so I was talking to some friends. They're like, Mel, you got to create your own goal or something for yourself to work towards. And that's when I actually made a, my first, like I made a video, a YouTube video, because I always wanted to make a short. And I was working towards something that I can create for myself. And I think that also sparked other things that I could see while we're doing a podcast now, because I wanted to do something for mm. my own. That helped me a lot during that dark time is having something you personally can work towards. Mm. But luckily, after the six to eight months in that gray zone, I got my first full-time job. But one thing I also learned is that the gray zone just evolves or takes different forms. Mm-hmm. So when I got my full-time job, even though I was getting paid on a regular basis, other questions started coming into my mind, like, do I like this job? Mm. Am I fulfilled? I think it's also because you got a taste of what it is because you were so excited for the Wang Fu position mm-hmm. and then for helping out. And it's all kind of like YouTube slash creative related and things that you could have a direct touch on. Yeah. That, yeah, it's hard to go from, I guess, like a passion project to a non-passion project. Exactly. Then you're always, your mind's going to always be spinning. It's always like, yeah, like you said, like, I want the cool job. I also want to get paid. You want your cake and eat it too. But you have to find that right balance. And I think that's one thing I learned is like, how can I find that balance of, hey, I'm getting creative stimulated but I'm also getting paid for what I'm doing mm-hmm. because like I think that I'm pretty sure a lot of you ladies deal with after post-grad is like you're comparing yourself to your friends like mm-hmm. my friends worked in tech they're going to Coachella and buying all these like concert tickets while I'm literally sitting at my LA home not having a job no money to pay for things it's just like how do you balance your happiness as well when you don't have money to pay for things that make you happy mm-hmm. right and you're also dealing with an Asian parent saying hey, why don't you have a job? I thought you told me yeah. you wouldn't get a job, but now you don't have one and then I'm paying for your rent. So what's going on? It's just a lot of pressure. Yeah. yeah. The gray zone for me was that time period looking for a job is really mm-hmm. tough. But I mean, hey, like 
I got out of it and I'm in a different type of gray zone now, but yeah. it is what it is, right? I mean, I guess to close up that story to the first job that you had, you ended up leaving that for something that is now in YouTube, right? So exactly. you're kind of like, and yeah. it's also much more stable than mm-hmm. an internship because now you are a head of something, yep. head of community. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's kind of like you're meshing together both the passion project and also the thing that you wanted right after college. Yeah. Another thing I would say is like, the gray zone can be like a really insecure time, but I feel like you learn so much about what you truly want and need in a job and yourself that if I didn't go to that gray zone period after postgrad I wouldn't have landed this job I wouldn't know what I want I was gonna ask yeah what if say that you actually landed in this job right out of college do you think you would appreciate it the same or how would your perspective be different I don't think I'd appreciate it and I think it's just like I had to go through like struggle and really like very insecure moments to really appreciate what I have today and see the growth that was necessary for me to be where I am today even with the podcast too, like if I didn't know that I wanted to create and be able to create something for myself or even also the biggest thing when I was producing and managing artists, I was supporting other people's projects. I was their team. I was the behind the camera person, whatever. And it was great because I loved being part of the movement. But then that experience led me to wanting to create something up for my own. And then now with the podcast, I finally feel like I got that. And I have two great ladies to do this with, right? So, oh yeah, I know. I mean, mean, hair flip, right? (laughs) But without that time, I wouldn't have thought I would want to start something, you know? So I think all this stuff is necessary. So that is my overview of my gray zone after post-grad. What is that quote? It's like, without darkness, there's no light. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, mix the two together and make it gray, right? right? I don't know. (laughs) Well, how about you, Janet? I know you also had some periods after graduation. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess I can speak more towards the specific gray zone that happens actually maybe a good like five to ten years out of college so the late 20s to the early 30s because I I started in a pretty stable job right out of school and then about two and a half years to three years in I left that job and then I started my tumultuous like five-year journey to get to kind of like where I am in my current role going into technology and working as a UX designer I used to work at Deloitte that was my first job out of college (laughs) I liken it to like if you had a bag of marbles and you cut the bottom out and it just comes rushing down. That's, I felt like the moment I quit, it was like I started something that I couldn't stop because even though there was an option of you to like go back to that company, I felt like I couldn't go back. Like my resume has been like spotless up until mm-hmm. this point, right? Like you went to school and you did this thing and then now you started this job. And the moment I left, I'm like, okay, fuck. I don't really know what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> you lost your marbles. Yep. I lost my marbles. Yeah. <laughs> I have a question for you. After you got the job at Deloitte, I know a lot of my friends who that was their end goal. Top four consulting firm, right? Or is it accounting firm? Accounting firm. Accounting firm. do a firm. bunch of stuff. I actually, and I was working in a pretty obscure department. And in hindsight. Transfer pricing department. Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> but here's the thing though. Even at, I guess to give some perspective, it's like in hindsight, this is speaking for those of you who are kind of like right out of school and looking at jobs and you get really nitpicky about like, the division that you were in or whatever that means like at the end of the day the experience or working for a large company will carry through regardless of what division you were in but when I graduated management consulting was the hot shit you know and so I was like oh I'm in transfer pricing it's like boring and kind of weird and blah 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 yeah but I guess all of that to say like I dealt with a lot of insecurity to get that nitpicky and that was like kind of my mindset and I think a lot of Asian American people can like relate to this where you get the B plus isn't enough you need an A or like Mm -hmm. even an A minus is not Mm -hmm. enough you need like you get so particular but I wanted to ask you something about you at Deloitte, Janet. So uh, the thing I was saying earlier, a lot of my friends want to work towards that company because it's like the status of that company name, right? But mm-hmm. you knew two weeks in, this is it, it for me, right? So yeah. it's like, I wonder how that feeling was for you. You're like, hey, this is the job I was working towards this whole college career. I got it. And hey, I don't like it. So what did you do or how did you deal with that feeling? 
Yeah, so I think I definitely had a, what would you say, like a complete like shift. Mm -hmm. And it was a shift out of fear because I thought this is the thing that I've been working so hard to get to. And then the moment that you're there and you realize that it doesn't feel like it's fulfilling. I'd been there for, yeah, like a week and a half to two weeks. And I thought, oh my God, if this is going to be my life for unforeseeable future, I don't think I can do this. And then you go into the, but then what else can I do? Mm -hmm. And I had a huge like question mark. And I think that was like very, very scary. I had like pretty deep depressive period when I was working there for the next like year or so. But I told myself I didn't want to leave because I was unhappy there. I wanted to be able to know why I was leaving, if mm. that makes sense. To be able to, because like a part of me also thought, is it just because I'm not used to working? Like, is it this job or is it like, it's just a big life transition? What was the trigger point? So a year yeah. in, you're like, okay, everything has sort of stabilized. And I know that it's probably this job and not just the fact that it's a big life transition. Yeah, right? it's the job. I don't know if it's as popular nowadays, but when I graduated around like 2007, 2008, it was looked down upon for you to have like less than two years at a company on your resume right Mm -hmm. so that that was also playing into my mind where I was like okay I should at least stay here for two years to not do that nowadays I don't know that I would give the same recommendation to like fresh grads if you're unhappy but I do think that it's important if you're unhappy in your work to stay long enough to figure out why right to have some like self-reflection and understand if it's the job if it's just you transitioning or what specific aspects of the job you don't really like but I stayed there to the point where I felt like I actually was okay with the job itself. I wasn't unhappy going to work. I didn't want to do this long term and I didn't quite know what else to do. So when I left my job, I kind of had an inkling of a couple of different things I was interested in, but I didn't really have anything concrete to go into. But what actually helped me pull the trigger because I realized like I wasn't like super depressed anymore, but I was still in a pretty negative mindset. And I knew that if I was going to try to like think of a next thing to do, I couldn't do it being at this company and having that day-to-day schedule because I was just not in the best mood. And so I told myself I would leave and then to give myself maybe a couple weeks just to shift my lifestyle and to work on being happier and then hopefully in a happier mindset to be able to come up with a better answer of something to do. So I did kind of like, I would say there was a good like six to seven months of like trying a bunch of different things. Like I guess it was like intern and ended up freelancing at a company that hosted a conference for social entrepreneurs. So I kind of explored that world because I didn't know what I wanted to do in there. But I thought that if I went to a conference where they invite people from all over the world who are working in the space that I would meet someone or understand better what's happening in the space. Ended up realizing that it's very hard to go into that uh, as a entry-level person and make enough money to live in San Francisco. (laughs) So then I ended up kind of like Mel having, deciding that I needed to look back more into like traditional industry work. And then so I thought, you know, okay, I've always wanted to do something a little bit more creative. And I had a friend who said, if you don't want to go back to school and kind of like learn design from the ground up, you can work in the creative industry, but practice more like strategy or business set skills that you've already actually have developed in your previous job. So then I looked into advertising and like brand strategy and advertising so that the type of work that I'd be doing, I have some experience in, but now it's in the creative industry. So I did this like boot camp, and you know, the plan was then to like move to New York City and work in advertising. Going into this whole like, as Mel's saying, it's like you move on to one thing and then it's like, oh, you're so excited. Mm-hmm. And then you try it and you realize, oh, fuck, this is not going to work, right? And then you go into another thing, you're like, oh, I'm so excited. And you're like, oh, fuck, this is not going to work. So (laughs) I guess I'm giving away kind of what is going to happen next. But like, yeah, I was super, super excited about advertising. I went to Miami for the program and I was like emailing my friends. Like, they're like, how is it going? I was like, I really, really like this. I'm meeting some awesome people. I think this is like going to be an amazing industry to work in. And then two or three months in and we go to New York City and I start to like 
interview at places and I'm starting to try to see my life there and I hit another wall of like questioning if this is something that I wanted to do and this is something I think for career transitioners is a really big battle that happens internally is struggling to balance having the confidence and the self-righteousness to know your value as someone who's not coming in brand new as like looking for a job but then also not being so greedy knowing that you're like you're still brand new to this you've never done it before so I really struggled with like navigating the job hunting process right out of the program I had like gotten the opportunity to interview with like a really stable awesome company but the role was like a little bit more junior and in the interest of trying to like look for something a little bit more senior I was like kind of speaking with some other individuals and I kind of fucked up the communication because of the fact that I I feel like I was too picky so I guess a lesson learned from that was like you should kind of eat your ego Mm -hmm. and know that if you take a lower level like within six months to a year you're probably going to work back up to that thing so that's really good advice to give yeah yeah I do I feel like my story is all over the place And I hope that serves as some relief or like relatability for other people out there who are going through the transitions of work to know that like it's normal and it's okay. And also to understand like when we talk about the gray zone being a repeated pattern, like we go through periods where you'll find a job and you'll feel great for like a couple of months. Mm -hmm. If maybe you decide you want to change it, maybe a couple of years, maybe months is like too rash, but, and then you decide you want to change again, like to be patient with yourself Mm -hmm. and that if you change your mind like it's okay and you should go and try things and I think another story that I could use to kind of like support that is after advertising I was looking into going into Chinese medicine keep in mind now was like my third or fourth career shift and I was getting very frustrated with myself I'm like fuck when am I going to find the thing that is like the thing that I should go into and so I'm like okay I need to do my due diligence I spent like months researching, reading articles. I messaged people on LinkedIn and I Googled like doctor's offices and I went physically into like interview doctors who are practitioners and I talked to teachers at like the different certification programs to figure out, is this something I could see myself doing? And even after all of that due diligence and I thought, okay, this is, I I think I want to do this. I signed up for the program and I went through like a quarter I was going through it and it isn't until you're actually living it and you're doing it at least that I've learned that about myself is I was like okay could you really see yourself doing this for four years with this education program and then I would also be very involved in like going to any of the workshops they had like different after-school activities and I also did like a part-time job at a office being immersed in that space and really starting to understand day-to-day what that would be like did I realize okay maybe this is not for me And I remember thinking like, I'm so frustrated with myself at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, And because there's an aspect of if I want to change again, like A, what is the thing that I should change into? And then B, do I have the energy to do that again? Mm -hmm. And then C, what am I going to tell my friends and family, right? Mm -hmm. And there's, it's not just about your own image, but at that point I was like, I don't want to put my poor parents through another, (laughs) like feeling like they don't know, like if I'm going to be okay. So then I ended up going into UX design and doing another round. Some of my friends during that period, I was like, if this is not it, I don't know what it is. Um, But now I'm happy. But yeah, I did the program and then I I started working and I found like something that I think is the right balance of providing me with the financial security and the lifestyle of what I want from career, but then also allowing me to be creative. And also it's an industry that is, I think, dynamic enough that I could find work at a corporate setting if I wanted to, or I could find work at a startup and like a smaller team if I wanted to. So being able to identify that those are things that matter to me took trying like three or four different things and three or four very very different things Mm -hmm. but I think that 
is incredibly helpful, especially for millennials nowadays, right? Because nowadays, I think two to three years is like max before people jump to different jobs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would say our generation or right before our generation and before, a lot of people would say my first career is going to be my lifelong career or I'm going to do whatever I can to have that financial stability. And as long as I have financial stability, I'll be happy that I can, you know, feed Mm -hmm. into happiness in some other way. But I think your story probably resonates with a lot of people out there who are jumping from job to job to job and knowing that there's like reassurance that it's okay and that eventually you'll come around and you'll find what it needs to be. Because one thing I took away from your story, Jenna, is like two things. One, I feel like it shows your work ethic. Because I know a lot of people who say, I want to do this, I want to do that. But they don't go into the research and do all the due diligence that you did to figure out if this is the right job for you. So you definitely have someone that's like, I'm going to go head on and see if this is the right thing. And you did and you realized it wasn't working for you. But people say like, you got to figure out what you don't like to figure out what you actually do like. Yes. And I think that's what you actually did, right? Yeah. Because you'd rather be moving forward than kind of being paused and thinking about things versus like or being stuck in a place. Right, right. I do think like for career transitioning people, I always encourage to be proactive. But I also want to give the flip side and say that even if you are proactive and you do all the research and you do all the thinking and the talking to people, you kind of just have to try it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like you can do all the homework, but it, it takes kind of like jumping to kind of like figure. So don't be afraid to make mistakes. Going back to like what I was saying about being picky about interviewing when I was in advertising, I realized that that boiled down to fear. It was because I was afraid to make the wrong decision or Mm -hmm. like to start the wrong job. And it's better to just get started because then you can like move on to the next thing and Mm self-correct. This episode is brought to you by Skillshare. One thing we're really big on here at ABG is leveling up. What helps us to be strong, intelligent women is continuously learning new skills, which allows us to thrive. Skillshare is an online learning community with thousands of classes for creators, entrepreneurs, and curious people everywhere. As a UX designer, I was quite impressed that they have classes by pretty legit practitioners, like directors from well-known companies and Adobe certified trainers. As a career transitioner, I feel good knowing that I have Skillshare as a resource if I want some extra support for projects at work. Join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for ABG listeners, two months free. That's right. Skillshare is offering Asian Boss Girl listeners two months of unlimited access to thousands of classes for free. To sign up, go to Skillshare.com ABG. Again, that's Skillshare.com ABG to start your two months now. Skillshare.com ABG. So speaking of having a career for a very long time, like the previous generations, Helen actually has her job for like seven years. I've had one job. (laughs) It's actually really interesting that that all three of us offer different perspectives. Like Mel went directly into like the passion route and then Janet went into Deloitte and I'm also in a big four now, but then Janet jumped out of it two years out and then tried a bunch of different things and now she's happy where she is versus I've been at a big four for nine years now for a long period of time. And so the question of, I guess, the gray zone hit me right after college? I would say probably not. I felt like right after I got my job, I was very happy about the prestige of it, right? Like Janet, you were saying Deloitte is a very prestigious name and you're like, oh, should I be leaving this job for something else or is it really just the work itself? I remember thinking to myself like, oh, this is a really good job. What I have to do is put my head down and just work really hard. And as long as I work hard, then I'm gonna reap the benefits of Mm. whatever this job is gonna give me. 
I think after maybe two busy seasons, which are pretty much just like 60 hour work weeks for like four or five months periods of time. Oh my gosh. After two years of that, I remember thinking, and that's when most people do start thinking about leaving or start Mm -hmm. thinking about going to a different job. I remember I had those thoughts too. But then I also had two very good mentors that, you know, kind of talked me out of it because I was so laser focused on the long days and nights, etc. But they kind of gave me insight of what this career could be for me and what the potential could be because I guess they saw potential in me also. And so that kind of helped me to stay at the company. So we all know that you moved out from Boston to be in L.A. Was there a moment in your career that you, you were questioning yourself? There was because when I was in Boston, which is my hometown, it was very complacent. Like everything was just super stable. I was mm-hmm. living at home still, so I was saving money. And then I also had a very stable boyfriend and a lot of my closest friends are from high school. Mm-hmm. So after college, we had all come back to Boston to work because they have good companies there. So our friend groups were all there. Family was there. Boyfriend was good. And I think it was just too stable for me. Mm. So maybe that mixed with like not feeling too much fulfillment in my job or feeling Mm -hmm. like I had time to hang out with my friends as much even because it was so busy. That's when I felt like I needed a transition. Mm. And why did you select LA out of all the cities? Because my grandparents are here. My mom's side of the family side. Yeah. Because I think for me, like, I'm curious as to when you're feeling complacency, why did you decide that you wanted to change locations versus change companies? Mm -hmm. I had always wanted to move to LA ever since I applied to California colleges and I actually had gotten into UCLA and that's the school I really wanted to go through. I actually had like huge arguments with my parents about this, like yelled at them about it because I was like, I want to move. And then I had a full ride to Boston College. So I was like, shit, I need to help them out too by, Mm -hmm. you know, because it's so expensive for college. Mm -hmm. So in my mind, I was like, okay, four years, sure. I guess I could stay home and just do this. Such a bratty kid. But I was like, and Boston College is a great school too. So then after that, I applied for work in California. And then I got my job in Boston. And I was like, shit, this is a really good job. I have to take it, right? Mm -hmm. So then I took it and I was like, okay. Every year I said to myself, I'm going to, this is the year I'm going to move out. And so it wasn't until three years down the line. Then I was like, okay, this has to be the time that I do it. And so that's why I moved out to LA. Mm. but it's always been my calling yeah did you think oh i'm gonna go to la and then i'll look for a new job i knew that when i moved i'd want to have the security of a job Mm. and then so when i ran that idea by my bosses my partners they were completely supportive of it and so they got me in contact i think the same day with the partner over in la Mm. and so i had like a quick interview with them and they were like oh yeah just like ship her over and oh, wow. that was pretty much it. Yeah, super easy. And I think the firm is just very supportive of, you know, because inter- they'd rather not lose you. They'd rather right, keep you, right. but maybe for an- another region. But did you in your mind think like you wanted to come here and look for a different type of work? A little bit, a little bit. But I think at the same time, one of the things that I think these types of companies do is that they keep you so busy that you don't have time mm. to think about. Yeah. You don't have time to think about any other job or any other passion project that could lead to a job. Yeah. Especially your first year or two. You're yep. just really focused on doing a good job, staying late nights, showing your worth pretty much. Mm-hmm. That I feel like it's very difficult to have time for yourself yeah and I also think since you moved from Boston to LA there's so many things that are changing your life like your housing situation your friends like all these you're trying to figure yourself out in a new city the last thing you want to change is a job because when you have so many other exactly so many other variables to have to like worry or care about yeah like how was that like for you that when you first moved I I can only assume when you first moved to LA that that's a huge gray zone yeah it was and I think I got extremely lucky because when I moved here I kind of just posted on Facebook and I said hey looking for a roommate and then one of my friends from high school went to Emory and his 
Emery friend was also moving to mm. LA. My friend Evelyn. Hey, Evelyn. <laughs> so I ended up being her roommate because she was going to move there a week after I got there. So I got there and then I just like searched for housing for the two of us. Didn't know her at all. But then when I met her, I was like, oh, she's literally the sweetest girl. So I was like, yes, thank you. Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then she was very connected to a lot of people too. Mm-hmm. So I hung out with her friends a lot and that helped me to grow my friend base. So I think I got very lucky with that because I know when people move to LA, it is a very lonely place mm-hmm. to be because yeah. I, I hear about how people are super like clicky yeah. with their mm-hmm. own groups. So I know we get a lot of questions about how do you make new friends. I also yeah. feel like Helen where I think when I moved to LA, I was very fortunate to meet the people I met because like they became my friends. Yeah. You know, but it also came with effort. I'm assuming you had put an effort for those friendships too. Right. So Helena, since she, after you moved here, you know, you start, started establishing yourself. Um, I feel like in a sense, you could say you moved out of this gray zone to another, which is your work, right? Because you've been mm-hmm. at your job now for what, almost nine years yeah. at the same company. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you face a lot of like questions and like yeah. things there, right? No, I remember reading Sheryl Sandberg's book in 2013, mm-hmm. right? And I remember thinking that she got a lot of backlash for talking about how women should really dive into their careers mm-hmm. and you know how you can balance having both a job and be good at both at family as well and I remember because that was, that was only like two three years into my career and I was thinking to myself like yeah of course like when I get to that level nine ten years out upper management I'm gonna be what she wants women to be I'm gonna be wanting to fight for you know my job and you know get a seat at the table and make sure to speak up and then she got a lot of backlash about that because they were like, oh, but you're a privilege and you have help and not a lot of women can actually do that, right? So at that point in time, I, I remember thinking that I didn't understand what people were saying regarding the privilege mm. um, in all senses of that word, right? Other than just being rich. What's interesting is that nine years now in my career, I do feel like I've faced these sort of like minor daily interactions with people, with, you know, just my colleagues or my bosses, where I almost feel like I could say that it's difficult to get to the place where Sheryl Sandberg wants us to get to because of the glass ceiling and also especially for Asian women because of the bamboo ceiling. Mm And so I think when people talk about that, it's easy to just say, like, there is a bamboo ceiling. But, like, what contributes to the fact that there is a bamboo ceiling? And why aren't we doing anything to try and help that, right? And I think also about, like, the Me Too movement right now, where women are finally coming out and saying, these are my day-to-day interactions, and this is what's making it hard for me to get to the partner level. Mm -hmm. And so now what we see is that there are things that are being implemented. For example, within my company, there is, if women are trying to get to the partner level, there are mentors who are both men and women who are going to try and help specifically these women who are trying to get to the partner level. And I think that came literally out of Me Too. It came from women just speaking up and saying, like, this is a difficulty in my career and I feel like I can't break this glass ceiling. And so for me, I'm starting to feel like I'm seeing this like bamboo ceiling, which is that there are also these day-to-day interactions where Asian people go through specific things within their jobs and we kind of struggle through it in silence. We don't really talk about it with each other. We don't express that these are sort of the inhibitions that are are holding us back from getting to those like upper management positions. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of hit with the double whammy. Like you not only have the glass ceiling, but you have a bamboo ceiling as well, being Asian American, right? Right, right. One example of that, and maybe this is for both like being a female and Asian, for example, Like me as a manager, sometimes I'm in a room with my boss and then someone who's a subordinate to me, right, at senior level. There have been many times in my career where same situation and the partner will address the white male instead of addressing me, even though I'm the manager and I should, he doesn't ask for my opinion. You're higher level than him, essentially. Exactly. So of course, I'll 
vocalize my opinion afterwards, right? But even though I'm not like solicited to to answer the question, but I will because I'm like, okay, well, I should be answering this Mm -hmm, question. mm -hmm. But at that point in time, I could be like, hey, or pull him aside and say, hey, why did you ask him to give a response instead of ask me? Like, what was it about that interaction? So those things, I feel like those small moments are, they seem so petty that you Mm -hmm. don't want to raise it up. You don't want to bring it up. You don't want to say like, I feel like I'm not being as valued as the manager in this group. Mm -hmm. But because I don't say that, I think then it gets compounded and over a course of nine years, it does put some limitations on you where you just don't feel like you, it's almost like imposter syndrome, right? You don't belong there. It's difficult because I feel it it kind of shows that the gray zone takes many shapes and forms. Mm -hmm. It goes hand in hand with imposter syndrome. Well, I think Helen, because you were saying that like, it's like you let that one moment slide, but over the course of even just one year, that could be like however many, like 50 different moments, right? And then slowly because people just continue behaving that way, you start to believe that that's okay too. Mm -hmm. So then it's harder than for you as an Asian American woman to identify even moments that seem unfair after a while. Because you're just like, this is just normal. This is just how it's supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah. And so I do wonder with like the success of the Me Too movement and how that is getting more women promoted and how that's literally like a focus point now when we have like our newsletters on a yearly basis. Mm -hmm. They're like, more women are promoted this year, like more whatever. But I think what's interesting is that within our companies, like the big four, I would say about 20% of the people that come in are Asian. But Mm -hmm. the people who actually get to the partner level is like 5%, right? And then why is that the case? What is it between that first entry level and the partner level that there's no discussion about what's happening with these sort of like minor daily interactions that are building up to the results of, you know, nine, 10 years down the line. So say there were like a handful of Asian people at the top, perhaps they got there playing the white man's game, Mm -hmm. you know, versus like really standing up for the Asian perspective that then allows you to relate to them because they maybe got there by then just like blending because they were male or because they were more, I don't know, something that... Outspoken about certain topics, yeah. Yeah, no, I I completely agree. I think that is the case. Like you kind of have to play into the game and then some people can do that, but I think it's also a very limited amount, right? So it's like a fourth of the people that came in can actually play that game and get to, to the top. And I think those stats are actually the 20% to the 5% is interesting because then in terms of like white people that come in or even any other ethnicity, it's about the same percentage at the top, Mm. but it's only Asian people that are diminishes diminishes over time. So, I mean, all of this said, I feel like with the gray zone, I'm starting to see and feel this more and more and more as I progress in my career. Um, And then just going back to Cheryl Sandberg's point, it's like, okay, well, I can see how you did speak from a place of privilege because mm. maybe you didn't face the same, these minor interactions that I face yeah. on a day-to-day basis. I'm still going for it. So let's see what happens. And I just feel like we need to have more and more conversations about things like this. I think at the end of the day, leadership, they don't know what we need help on. Mm-hmm, right. And we don't know what we need help on because we don't talk about it. Yes. Because yeah. we just internalize it. And even the scenario that I brought up with like my senior and my partner, like no one talks about that because it's like, oh, he addressed him instead of me. Well, that seems kind of petty. Like yeah. I'll just speak mm-hmm. up next time. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of like institutionalized or it's just kind of yeah. what, you know, is like as expected nowadays or something like that Mm -hmm. recently i had a working session or meeting and it's a pretty diverse group of like men women white asian but there's only one other asian girl and myself and they got us like the woman like got our names mixed up again and Mm -hmm. i've had that happen so many times and my reaction is always now like i i almost like i don't want them to feel uncomfortable so i kind of laugh and i'm like oh yeah don't worry about it 
I'm like, why, why did I do that? Mm. Right. Like, because I, and they're all, it's always someone in a position of power above me that will mess it up. And then I feel the need to like make them not feel bad. Yeah. And I think that's like something that's just ingrained in, yeah. 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 That would have been an opportunity where I could have spoken up and she wouldn't have gotten angry. She would have felt bad if I had brought up, well, you know, like. But it's also like, I think when you're speaking up to someone in power, then it's like, well, if I do, then are they going to feel uncomfortable working with me in the future? It it Uh, does like diminish your career in the future at some point, you know, like choosing not to work with you because you're going to speak up against them. Right, right. So it's kind of like you just have to accept these little things that happen and not talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. I think previously you guys know my last job was working in fast fashion. I was surrounded by women of color. So my leaderships were all women and they're all like diverse. Now shifting over to a media company, I'm working with much more men. And my mm. leadership team is all men. I'm the only woman. So they also want to bring me up because they're like, we know how powerful it is to have a woman's voice in here. So it's just like also knowing that I feel like I'm more empowered. Like yeah. I need to be in this room to make this decision. I'm, yeah. I, need to, I need to be here because I think naturally being a man, you see things differently. just how you are. And so when they're so used to seeing their perspectives, their own eyes as a man, it's unnatural for them to see things as a woman, feel things as a woman. So they need just that presence in their room just to say, hey, that's not right. I actually see, see it this way. We got to give more voices to other people in our company. Mm-hmm. And so even if it's not super like a strong statement, a woman's voice is very necessary in the room yeah. to make decisions. And I think also maybe your company is like a little bit newer age, right? Like mm-hmm. they're a little bit more woke about diversity yeah. Yeah. and how that is really helpful to add in different thoughts and ideas into yeah. a conversation. I do think that with these much longer mm-hmm. uh, traditional, traditional yeah. companies, these partners have been there for like 25, 30 years, right? So it's like they operate the same way day to day to day. Mm-hmm. They hear things, but it's like how they're not going to really shift anything until someone ruffles their feathers. Yeah. So yeah, I, I completely agree. I think with this Me Too movement, what I've seen is that I think men are kind of speaking up for women more. Like mm-hmm. for example, if you see if you see like a six two white man or and like a five two Filipino woman walk into a room, more likely than not, you're gonna think that the Filipino woman is like his secretary or something, right? Mm. And so I think what a woke man would do that guy, he would sort of like elevate her immediately by saying like, "Hey, this is." whatever, Rebecca, and she just led this like amazing deal and she's going to be so good for this position. So then when people see her, they're not seeing this like five, two little petite Asian girl. Mm-hmm. They're seeing someone who's coming in as like a powerhouse yeah. with equal footing as him. Mm-hmm. So it's like these little things where it's like people in a place of privilege, how do they help everyone else? Mm-hmm. We also yeah. have to educate them on and how to do it. speak up, for instance, is because by the nature, they don't know what it's like to be a 5'2 woman, right? Exactly. So it's our responsibility to communicate that and to not just kind of like try to make them comfortable or to kind of skate by. Yeah. I feel like I kind of derailed this conversation with like everything that I'm going through right now. But. Yeah, but it's yeah. interesting because you're putting into like perspective, like what what are the current grades zone we're going through in our current yeah. jobs, right? Because you brought up a good point because you guys are talking about like being an Asian American woman, like being Asian and being a woman in a company. So something happened at work or I'm starting to notice this thing where my identity is coming into play. Like being Asian is being seen because like you guys know I work for a media company. The content we put out is for everyone. It's not just Asians. It's for everyone of different backgrounds and mm-hmm. colors and whatnot. But then we're getting comments now saying, why is your team Asian? Why is a lot of, there's a lot of Asians. And I was like, why are you, your what is that? Your team is so diverse. Mm-hmm. But our leadership actually is like three of us are Asian. For me, at first I was really bothered by that comment because I was like, if you see a team of white people, you'll never question this. Yeah. But why is it when there's a group of Asians, you're questioning, why are the Asians leading your company and right. team? But my thing is like, well, Actually, fuck it. I am Asian. I am being, I'm a leadership in this company. You have to see that in order for you to believe that you can be someone of power in media mm-hmm. and not be a white person, mm-hmm. you know? Because it's just like, 
I think in so much in Hollywood entertainment, it's always the white man kind of leading the way and paving this way. When you've been leading for so long, I'm pretty sure you guys could relate to your own companies is that opportunities are given more and more because they're, they're built up this repertoire and like this experience. So they keep climbing this like ladder, right? But then for us as Asians, like we got to keep climbing so we could be examples for other Asians to pursue this as well. Yeah, there's a lot, it's a lot more difficult also. I mean, another example of like the day-to-day stuff, right? Mm-hmm. It's just like, especially working in a place with all men, mostly men. Yeah. There's, a, there's still a lot of females and sure, it's, it's pretty diverse, uh, not at the top, but it's like, they like to talk about sports yep. and they, it's like these little things where it's like, they'd rather just yeah. work with someone that can kind of relate to them, right. both on like a sports level and what do you do after work, you know, like things yeah. like that. But then it's like, how do you fix that, right? You can't just like tell people, don't talk about sports, right? right? Yeah. I mean, I think you fix it by having more people of different backgrounds and interests that come up into that level. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's going to be... I would say it's like, I feel like it is happening, but it's something that to happen effectively is going to take a lot of time, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. keep the patience, but then to make sure that, I don't want to sound salesy, like do your part. <laughs> but Like I see what you're saying, Janet. It's like for me, it's Helen, get to the partner level so that I can bring up other people. Mm-hmm. But that's like, that's a lot of burden. Yeah. It's a, yeah. And it's, so I think for the, some of those people that will first start breaking through, like you bear a lot of weight on your shoulders to right. do that. Yeah. But it's also incredibly admirable yeah. to be, to be focusing on that and pushing through. So you can see why it's challenging, especially for like Asian American women to break through if they're not relating on, you know, those types of interests as like white men. Mm-hmm. And I would say that one of the big reasons why I do continue to stay with this company, unlike a lot of millennials who leave after two or three years, is because I do want to get there and so that I can be sort of this example for other Asian females that are trying to sort of climb the corporate ladder. And whether it's through my company itself or through this podcast, hopefully it gives people some insight of the difficulties that, you know, that I've faced and what a lot of other people are likely facing at the same time. I think this relates a lot back to our imposter syndrome episode too. So having conversations about these like daily minor interactions and highlighting it, having conversations around it and then finding solutions for it and then kind of bubbling that up to leadership so that they eventually can know how to also help Asian people get up there. So one of the greatest takeaways that I've personally kind of realized about gray zones after college is that it actually happens multiple times throughout your life. So instead of seeing them as periods to like conquer or get over, I think it's good to try to learn to embrace the variety that it provides in life and appreciate like the different opportunities and uh, the growth that it can actually provide. Unpredictability and change can be really frustrating, but it can also be really exciting and freeing. So it's kind of like a cheesy saying, but instead of like looking for calm waters, like learn to surf the waves no exactly i I totally agree with janet and like i feel like you need these periods of insecurities and gray zone to kind of get to where you are today right i think that in order for us to get through these individual struggles in the gray zone we're fighting a bigger fight for like larger issues that matter right like for the world like for example for me if i didn't go through all that shitty time like not finding a job and like working in media and figuring that stuff out i wouldn't be where i am today and trying to fight this fight for like asian american representation in media entertainment for leadership roles Likewise, I feel like even as I was telling my story, I still sometimes have that inner dialogue like, oh my God, you were doing this and you're like bouncing around all over the place. But yeah, I think about like what I'm doing now and each one of the things that I did 
highlighted a, a certain value that now I know more about myself. So for those of you who are changing, hang in there and know that everything happens for a positive reason if you believe that. And then lastly, if you are in sort of a, a lifelong career, one career, I think one important thing to take away from there is, you know, find people who will look after you and who will be your champions. For me, I was able to sort of get through these nine years because I had really good mentors and people who would show me sort of the bigger picture of what my potential was. And so when you do have those people that are sort of like your cheerleaders on the side, then you're able to get through all of the different gray zone areas that you would feel throughout your career. So this wraps up today's episode about the gray zone or zones as we kind of covered. If you guys have stories that you'd like to share with us, please send us an email at asianbossgirl at gmail.com. And we're also very active on social media. So find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at asianbossgirl. And if you like what you heard, leave us a five on iTunes and leave us a review. We always like to see those. If you'd also like to potentially be featured in one of our episodes for Dear ABG, call us at 213-262-8776. That's 213-262-8776. Thanks for listening and see y'all next week. Bye. Bye.